Good evening. As Ben said, it's Mark chapter 12, and that's found on page 1017 of the Church Bibles. Mark chapter 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowds, so they left him and went away. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he said. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a, brother, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry, marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard him debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Thanks, Cathy. You might like to keep the Bibles open or your phones open if that's where you're following the passage. Uh, page 1018 is where we're going to be focusing. But let's pray before we start. Father, thank you that, uh, as we've been singing earlier, uh, that you love us so much. And help us now as we, as we think about that and the implications for each one of us to love you more. May your Holy Spirit be at work this evening. Amen. So. The Christian life is all about love. God loves us. We love God. So, here's a picture about love. This is apparently the most uh, romantic uh, picture ever painted um, in various dodgy poles that I looked at. Um, 
It's by an artist called Gustav Klimt, and you've probably seen it all over the place in poster shops and on cards and all, all sorts of stuff. Um, what Gustav Klimt was doing in this painting was, if you like, radicalising our view of love. Because up to now, all the paintings of love are all rather soppy with, you know, flowers and bees and ladies swinging on swings and all that sort of stuff. And he wanted to get over an idea of love that was profoundly different. And so uh, the whole picture feels rather Eastern or Oriental. Gustav Klimt was, um, was an Austrian. So he's setting this picture outside time without limits. The couple look as though they're uh, different nationalities, mixed race. The, the, the symbols are sort of symbolic, but don't really mean anything particular. You've got creation at their feet, and then just a sort of an endless space beyond them. And in the middle, this couple, maybe husband and wife, are just locked in this intimate embrace where you, the two the, the robes just merge together. And this was the last painting he did where he used gold foil all the way through, the most precious uh, material that he could use. I'm sure he didn't mean it to be, but to me it struck me as not a bad illustration as we begin to think of God's love for us and our response to that. Because that sort of love is, is, the Bible uses that word, which I know we've referred to here before, the Greek word agape, agape love. That sort of all-consuming, all-powerful love. Steadfast is a word that keeps coming up in the Psalms to describe God's love. Jeremiah 31, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And that everlasting love culminates, doesn't it, as we move into this bit of Mark's gospel, when God comes to us in the person of Jesus, and he leaves heaven and he enters hell to save us from that eternity and death and separation that we deserve. That is agape love in action. God so loved the world Hebrews tells us that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Well, that's God's love for us. We've been singing about that. We've been reflecting on it. Uh, we, we read about it. But the question is, that's all very nice, but what am I supposed to do about that? And you have a choice. We all have a choice. The choice is, well, do I uh, accept that love? Or do I ignore that love or reject it or just write it off? And actually, chapter 12 of Mark is basically about life outside of the love of God. And it means that if you're not a Christian, well, you probably fit into one of those categories, one of those stories uh, we've just been hearing. Now, there's a whole lot more behind these stories, these parables, and, and there's, there's, there's lots going on. But I just want to pick out an underlying theme, if you like, an attitude that runs through 
all four stories. So verses 1 to 12, um, uh, there's the vineyard. Um, and that seems to be a bunch of people there who know there is a God. They know there's an owner of the vineyard. But they want to keep him out. They want the vineyard for themselves. These are people who, actually, Jesus is aiming at this at religious people, people who do accept that God exists, but actually don't want God interfering in their own lives. For them, and maybe the same for you, you want to keep God out of your life. And then there's this argument about paying taxes, uh, isn't there? That's verses 13 to 17. And, and there's a sort of underlying attitude there, isn't there, about keeping the rules. You know, what do I do to keep God happy? If I keep the rules, if I behave ethically, if I do the right thing, will God be pleased with me? For the people asking the question, and it, and it is a bit of a trick question, admittedly, but the people asking the question and maybe for you, this is all about God setting rules. And then we have the next argument uh, when the Sadducees turn up, verses 16 to 27, and their question is about how marriage works in heaven. Um, it's, it's a question that's sort of supposed to prove that there is no life after death. It, it's the Blackadder theology. Life is like a broken pencil. Oh, gosh. At least Ben heard it, was seen it. Life is like a broken pencil, pointless. There's nothing more to life than this, says that argument. No God, no eternity. That's probably what most folk will think outside this building, isn't it? And then there's one more attitude that crops up. We get to the end of the chapter, two little incidents around verses 38 and 44, and that's an attitude that says, well, look, I'm okay as I am, thank you very much. Jesus sort of points up the smug attitudes, doesn't he, of the great and the good, verse 39. And then as that, the poor woman in uh, verse 41, she gives her 2P to the temple, Jesus contrasts her with the rich people, the rich and successful. Uh, they were going up to the payers machine at the end of the service and they were waving their platinum card around or, or whatever it might be. And a big show of how successful they are. If you have got a platinum card, do have a word afterwards because we can still make payers machine work for you. But uh, life was good. They didn't need God. Life was good where they were at the moment. And maybe that's how you feel. Don't need God. Life's okay. So the chapter is full of people who want to ignore or reject God or think they can manipulate him. And verse 24 is a great verse. We could spend a lot of time just thinking on that one, but it probably applies to everybody that we've thought about so far. These are people who don't know the scriptures, they don't know the Bible. And they don't know the power of God. Jesus talks about the Sadducees, doesn't he? He says they're badly mistaken. Can I say to you in all um, courtesy that if you are in that category, one of those categories this evening, then you are also in the badly mistaken category. It is time for a rethink to say how do we respond? How do I process 
a God of love. But in all that negativity, in all those sort of sad stories, really, there's one little ray of sunshine breaking through, isn't it? And it's verse 28. Verse 28, one of the religious teachers uh, comes to Jesus and asks, this time, sincerely, this seems to be a perfectly honest, straightforward question, which is the most important commandment? You might say, well, what's most important to God? It's a great question, isn't it? It was apparently quite a hot topic for discussion in, in those days. Um, it's a bit like we're probably discussing who's going to win Bake Off or the excitement of Ikea coming to Brighton. Well, we talk about that. Well, these folk had something better to talk about. It's a great question, isn't it? It might be one you can try out with friends, school, college, workplace. If God existed, to use the alpha formula, if God existed, what do you think would be his number one priority? That's not a bad question uh, to try out, isn't it? And I think Jesus' answer at this point would have been a bit of a surprise because he's been up to now challenging the establishment. He's been challenging ways of thinking that have been received and taught for a long time. And yet, when he's asked this question, he does almost exactly the opposite. He goes back hundreds of years. He goes back to the books you might see in footnotes of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, those kind of obscure books to us in the Old Testament. And he recites those words that Ben referred to earlier. They're known as the Shema. Uh, and those are the words that every devout Jew will still know and will still recite. And if you go around Brighton, you will know where an Orthodox Jewish family are because there these words will be up, perhaps in a cylinder, outside their doors. And so every day a devout Jew will be saying these words. Shimur Yisrael Adonai Elohainu Adonai Echat. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. It's a huge statement, isn't it? There is one eternal, steadfast, loving God, says Jesus. He is the God of the whole Bible, going back through time. And this huge, magnificent, loving God, what does he want from us? Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? All he wants, all he wants is for him, for us to love him back. That's all there is to it. But, says verse 30, and Jesus says we are to love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. That is God's agape love returned, isn't it? It's the love that that painting was trying to capture. God loves us with everything he's got forever. And that's how we are to love him. Now, Jesus was asked a very similar question uh, to this in, in, in Luke's Gospel. And that very quickly moves on to the story of the Good Samaritan. 
um, which was apparently the Queen's favourite bit of the Bible I discovered the other day. Um, and so it's very natural for our focus to move on quite quickly to the second commandment of loving our neighbour. But that wasn't Jesus' first reply, was it? His first reply, top of God's wish list, is that we will love him. So, we're just going to have a little think about how and what it means to love God like that. And the first thing to notice, I guess, which might seem a bit strange, is that this is a command. In fact, the Hebrew word for command, mitzvah, is, is the same sort of word as a word for, uh, for, for doing something. It's all kind of wrapped up together. If we're commanded to do something, we, we do something. And for us, that's really odd, isn't it? You can't command someone to love somebody else, surely. Um, you watch programs like Love Island or Disney films, all this sort of stuff. People aren't told to love. It wouldn't have sounded so odd, I don't think, in Jesus' time or in other cultures, a culture of arranged marriages where folk met and grew in love together. It would be more uh, natural. And it is still implicit, isn't it, in our marriage services. People take vows to love each other. They don't promise to keep falling in love or keep feeling romantic or keep feeling fizzy. We make a vow to commit to loving each other. It's a conscious decision. And that is the command here. Okay, so it's a command. It's something we, we, we need to respond to. But how are we going to do that? It's interesting. Peter writes in his first letter, he writes to uh, the, the Christians in there that you love God even though you haven't seen him. You see, you don't have to see someone to love them. When my uh, dad went off to war, he, they got, my mum and dad got married. Uh, about a week or so later, he went off uh, to Persia for um, four years. She didn't see him for four years. During that four years, he wrote home every day, uh, and she kept a notebook, just listing every letter. And then there'd be a gap, and I guess she would worry. Uh, and then a few more letters would arrive. So my mum couldn't see my dad, but she knew him and she loved him. Um, we, I know we've done Renaissance art before, especially for KO. I, I, I thought maybe 14th century uh, Dominican theology would also be of interest. Um, Henry Suzo was a Dominican friar, and he said in the 1300s, God knows we can't love someone that we can't know or understand. In other words, we can know God. That is how we love him. God reveals himself. And there's nothing new in this. How does God reveal himself? Well, he reveals himself in Scripture and through the Holy Spirit. It's why we read the Bible. It's why we read the Bible so seriously, take it so seriously uh, in this church. We must know the Scriptures if we're to know God, if we're to grow in love. It's why we pray. We talk with God. Those letters going backwards and forwards between my mum and dad kept their love alive. You can't, love can't grow in silence. And we must know his power. We must experience God's power. It was another criticism 
wasn't it, of, Jewish, of, the, uh, of Jesus' listeners. Tozer said, the Holy Spirit has been poured out from on high. Our spirits are lifted when we know the presence of the one we love. We cannot love without the help of the Holy Spirit. And that love should grow and mature. I'm getting a bit fixated on my family at the moment, but we, we, we found a very old photo at home the other day, taken in 1973 on the Norfolk Broads, um, and it was taken about three days after I first set eyes on my wife. Um, I'd just turned 15, uh, she was still 14. Um, for me, it was love at first sight, she completely ignored me. But, you know, my love for my wife is not the same as it was when I was 15 on the Norfolk Broads. Over the years, our love deepens and changes and matures. And because we're specialising on medieval monks, Bernard of Clairvaux, who you all know well, says, do you know, it's the same with our love for God. Our love for God will grow and mature and deepen. And for those of us who have been Christians for a while or are just setting off on uh, the Christian walk, we should expect to see our love for God develop. And now Bernard gives us four stages. This may be a bit heavy, but never mind. Just, just try it out, see what you think. Because he says, we start off loving ourselves and loving each other, simply because that's a kind of godly thing to do, and, and we all have some God-given grace in us. But then, as we understand all that God has given us, all the gifts that he's given us, we grow to love God because of what he's done for us. But he says again, as we grow on, uh, grow up, and we begin to understand God better, and our relationship deepens, then we begin to love him simply for who he is. And he says, many folk will grow into that love. But he says, one day, and he says, maybe this is impossible, it's something to think about, one day we will be able to love ourselves as God loves us. Which is quite a thing to think about, is it? Whether we can love ourselves as God loves us. That's living out the truth that we are in Christ and Christ in us. Now, that may be a little bit uh, medievally, mystically deep, but the point is our love should grow. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a dried up raisin, it's a living, flourishing fruit. God will perfect his love in us. And this love, however weak it may be, however half formed it may be, well, it will show in how we behave. That is why Jesus says the second commandment is to love our neighbour. But that love of God, we will see our behaviour change. And our love may be very feeble, but we'll still see changes. And if you want a really great example of that, then we can go to the end of John's Gospel when Jesus is chatting to Peter on the beach after the resurrection. And he says to Peter, he asks Peter, do you love me? 
Do you agape love me? Do you love me with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength? And Peter says, yeah, I'm fond of you. And Jesus says, look after my sheep. And then he asks it again, and he says exactly the same thing again. And then he asks the third time, and this time he says to Peter, well, are you even fond of me? And Peter says, yeah, I'm fond of you. And again, Jesus says, feed my sheep. What's fascinating is Jesus gives the same command to Peter each time, even though Peter says, no, I don't love you with all my heart and soul and mind. I'm fond of you. Jesus can use that. However weak we are, however discouraged we might feel, Peter can feed the flock with even that tiny amount of love. We can serve the Lord. We can still be fruitful, even if our love is so weak. But as we head towards the end of this, this little passage, there's a sting in the tail, sadly, one of these. Teacher, verse 32, he says, Well said, Jesus. And he repeats the answer. Here's a bloke who knows the scriptures. Here's someone who who knows what the right thing is to do. The right thing is to love God with everything you've got. And Jesus says, well, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. And we can read those verses in a little warm glow. Isn't that nice? He's not far from the kingdom of heaven. But actually, what Jesus is saying is, you're not in the kingdom of heaven. Something's got to change. You can recite the words, you can, you can, you can uh, walk the walk and all the rest of it, but actually, it's just head knowledge. You can tell me the right answer, it sounds great, but actually, this is about loving with your heart and your soul. There has to be a response from inside. 1 John 4, those famous verses say, because God first loved us, what do we do? Not read the Bible or or, or do good deeds or love our neighbor. Because God first loved us, we love God. Our first response to God's love is exactly this one in the picture. Just to enter God's embrace. Just to know that love that the Song of Solomon describes, that many waters cannot quench. We are just called to receive that love and love back. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength.